Hey everyone, you can listen to all seasons of As She Rises, including the new season three, ad-free on Wondery Plus. Hey everyone, before we get to the show, I want to tell you about another podcast you might like. Climate change is often siloed as a scientific story or a far-off problem, but as we know from this show, everything is a climate story. Enter The Carbon Copy. Hosted by veteran climate reporter Stephen Lacey, The Carbon Copy informs, enlightens, and sparks curiosity on the many ways a changing climate will impact our lives. From Russia's war on Ukraine to the housing crisis to Elon Musk's cultural influence, explore how climate change and the energy transition connect to the biggest stories of the day. Listen and follow The Carbon Copy wherever you get your podcasts. Like you, I woke up in the dark, but I was reaching for animals, trying to beat the heat. Like you, sunrise usually found me in the middle of doing something. I didn't call it prayer, but I did believe that if I did it every day, we would exist. I would exist. The you I couldn't imagine would have a chance. You don't know about my mother, my father, my grandfather, people who would have thought my never frostbitten ears a dream, people who wouldn't have known that stolen land could be so loving. Everything we had out there, we had to keep it alive, including each other. In the dark, sometimes I was midwife, milkmaid, machine, somewhere in there, a man. Brown is relative. You are more brown than I was after all the sun of the equator, after all the sun of some black woman as loving as land. And I believed in trees and watched their skin. Inheritor of so much space that you have never been to, have you? Oh, but I met you once, brown like a baby next to me. I was brown like an old man then, in the middle of the day and the skin of the orange tree was important. There is something I would teach you about it. If we both had been in any condition to take a walk or listen, I would have put your hand to the trunk of the tree. There is something for you to know there. I could have been the one to tell you. But instead, I gave your grandmother sweet oranges so she could feel special under the bored light of my son. And I hear she planted her own orange tree and passed it on to you, not the tree itself or the land it was on, but the sweet that comes from brown. You greet me still, greedy for stillness, early in the morning. Our story today is anchored less in one distinct place and more in a unique landscape. It will sing out to anyone familiar with the feelings of their hand in damp, warm soil, or of body aches and sweat only relieved when the sun lies down. They experience a different kind of quiet in the mornings and tiredness at night. It's a rhythm only known through intimate work with the land, 
a rhythm known across centuries of time and continents of space. Today, we're talking to people connected across their differences by the experience of farm work, a system built on a cracked foundation, cracks only deepening with climate change. When we hear about the evolving impact of climate change on our food and farming practices, we so rarely hear about the effect this has on the people who cultivate the food. Around the world, climate change is driving many people out of their homes. In Central America, droughts, floods, and extreme storms are having a devastating effect on crops, causing millions of farmers to migrate north to America. As climate change progresses, it is more important than ever to unlearn the systems of separation between land, food, and people. The climate crisis is, undeniably, a labor issue, too. From Wonder Media Network, I'm Grace Lynch, and this is As She Rises. This season, we're telling stories of climate progress that give us the hope we need to keep going. At the top of the show, you heard the poet and writer Alexis Pauline Gums reading an excerpt from Orchard from her recently published book, Dub. This season, we're excited to collaborate with The Slowdown, hosted by Ada Limon. From American Public Media and in partnership with the Poetry Foundation, The Slowdown offers a different way to see the world, through poetry. All of our poets from this season were featured last week on The Slowdown. I encourage you to listen to The Slowdown to hear more by Alexis. My name is Alexis Pauline Gums, and I live in Durham, North Carolina. These are the ancestral lands of the Okanichi Band of the Saponi Nation in sacred relationship with the Eno River. Alexis is a poet, scholar, and activist. Her work defies genre, and she's often deconstructing form. Her work tends to be dedicated to a world of possibility, centered on care for each other in the face of harm. In her most recent work, Dub, Alexis explores listening to the voices of her ancestors. Some of those include sea mammals, and others include people from generations back. In the passage she shared with us, Alexis is listening to her great-grandfather, who farmed on a citrus orchard in Jamaica. One of the few stories that I know about him is that he actually barely spoke to anyone. And when my grandmother moved there after she was pregnant with my oldest uncle, she really thought like he just didn't like her because he never spoke to her. And my great grandmother, her mother-in-law was like, no, he just is like that. But he brings you these sweet oranges. That means he does like you. You know, that, that was the thing that he would do. In wondering about the life of her great-grandfather, Alexis found a kinship. Her great-grandfather used to wake early to tend the orchards before the heat of the day. Like him, Alexis wakes up when it's still dark. In this particular piece, I feel like I was unlearning separation. The story that I have that I, I really don't have very much in common with this barely verbal farmer 
who lived a long time ago and is a man who lives in a country that I don't live in. But then we do have something in common. I do share with him that time of mourning and I do share with him daily practice. And even though, of course, there's specificity and of course there are differences, what if it is a form of prayer? What if it is a form of writing? It certainly is creative in the sense that it creates life and his particular labor is part of creating my life, right? So to, to honor that where I see separation, there's actually so much connection. What would it mean to focus on that? The people who grow our food do create life. They feed and nurture us in many ways. And yet, farming in the U.S. has always relied on exploited labor. From indentured servants in the 1600s, to enslaved people from Africa for hundreds of years, to laborers from Asia and Latin America in the 19th and 20th centuries. We're going to zoom in on what's happening today in Immokalee, Florida. To do that, we spoke with Lupe Gonzalo. Lupe came to Florida in 2000. Originally from Guatemala, she left in search of better-paying work to support her family. Para uno también tener una vida mejor que cuando uno está en su país, ¿verdad? Eso es algo que, pues, eh, pensé cuando, cuando yo vine, vine para acá, en, en Florida. We spoke to Lupe entirely in Spanish. Now I want to assure our non-Spanish-speaking listeners, like myself, that you'll still be able to follow along. For those who do speak Spanish, you'll just get a little bit more. Immokalee is in southwest Florida. This region along the coast was first settled by the Calusa people. Centuries later, the Seminole and Miccosukee people migrated from northern Florida to the area. In the Miccosukee language, Immokalee means your home. When I imagine Florida, I think of dense wetlands and roots reaching into swampy waters. But Immokalee is open and desolate looking. That's because more than 150 years ago, European settlers began draining the swampy land we now know as the Everglades. To this day, southern Florida is facing the consequences of this initial domino in the form of a disrupted and polluted ecosystem. It was all, supposedly, in the service of farmland. Immokalee is now mainly made up of agricultural land, primarily tomato farms. Driving through Immokalee, you see vast fields, trailer homes, huge trucks, and abandoned school buses. When Lupe first arrived, she heard she could find work on one of these tomato farms. She figured her past experience growing coffee in Guatemala would be helpful. Si es los campos, uno se imagina pues trabajar la tierra. Pensé que era como lo mío, ¿no? Pues no es como lo que uno piensa, ¿no? Como uno se imagina. Lupe said it wasn't at all like how she imagined. When she worked back home, they used manual tools, like the hoe, to shape beds and plant coffee crops. They hardly used any chemicals. She described it as working with the land, not against it. She and her co-workers could take their time and rest if they needed. When Lupe arrived in the U.S. 22 years ago, her typical day looked completely different. 
Un día típico de un trabajador, pues empieza desde la mañana, como a las tres y media, cuatro de la mañana, al empezar a levantarse, preparar algo de, de comida. It went like this. The day started at 3.30 a.m. with preparing food to take to work. By 5 or 5.30, you'd leave the house to go wait in a parking lot. Old repurposed school buses arrived in this parking lot, which they called La Pantrie, to transport workers to different farms. But you didn't have a guarantee that the bus would take you to the same farm every day, or even take you to work at all. If you were lucky, the buses would take you and leave by about six or so. When you got to the farm, you couldn't work right away. You can't harvest a wet or damp tomato. It risks spreading disease to the plants. And in Florida, it's very humid and damp, especially early in the morning. So workers have to wait for the plants to dry before they can begin harvesting. Usually the sun and the morning warmth dry the tomatoes by about 10 or 10.30, and workers don't get paid for the time they spent waiting. Entonces estás esperando ahí desde temprano, sin recibir ningún pago, nada, hasta que se llegue la hora de, de cosechar. When it's finally time to begin, workers are given a 32-pound bucket to fill. Once you fill it, you usually run 100 feet to a truck where someone hoists up the bucket, dumps it on the big growing pile of tomatoes, gives you the bucket back, and then gives you a ticket. This is crucial. Workers have to hold on to these tickets to be counted at the end of the day. You get paid per ticket. So 32 pounds is one bucket, which is one ticket, and that equals 50 cents. So let's do the math. On a good day, a worker can harvest 100, 150, maybe 200 buckets. If every day in a week were a good day, then that would be about $375 a week. But it's usually more like 300 or 200 or less if the weather changes or your body is in pain and you can't move as fast. A minimum salary is not guaranteed, and what they do earn is barely enough to cover rent. And that's just the pay. One's ability to do this work is affected by the working conditions. Let's not forget that it is hot and humid in Florida. Siempre estar en, en las labores con fuerte calor, veces más de 100, 100 grados, a veces 105. Entonces, a veces uno siente como que no puede respirar, se siente sofocante. Uno trabaja agachado para poder recoger los tomates, entonces en la espalda se siente que quema el, el, el sol por tan fuerte que es. Lupe says the extreme heat they face is suffocating. And these conditions are only getting worse. Florida currently has about 25 days each year of extreme heat, days when temperatures rise above 103 degrees Fahrenheit. As global temperatures continue to rise, the frequency of these dangerous temperatures will only increase. The independent research and reporting outlet, Climate Central, projects that in 30 years, Florida will have 130 days of extreme heat. That's more than a third of the year. Lupe remembers the day she realized that the work she did put her life in danger. In an article Lupe wrote for an environmental publication based in Florida, The Marjorie, she described a man she worked with who was always trying to make people laugh. One day, during a lunch break, 
her co-workers noticed his uncharacteristic silence and realized he had passed out. El señor se desmayó allí enfrente de todos nosotros. They couldn't wake him. When he came back a few days later after being in the hospital, he said that the doctors told him he had gotten insolación, or heat stroke. He had been working in high heat for too long without water. On top of all of this, the women working on these farms face a lot of sexual harassment and assault. It's common across farms that employ undocumented workers and migrants, not just Lupe's. Lupe said she didn't get it as bad as other women, but she would get asked out by her bosses in exchange for easier work. Si sales conmigo, um, vas a ganar mejor, o te voy a dar un trabajo más fácil, vas a ser mi secretaria, vas a apuntar los tickets de los trabajadores. Uno sí tiene miedo, ¿no? Porque uno dice, pues, ¿hasta dónde va a llegar esa persona? Uno se pregunta eso. The women couldn't really talk about what they were going through for fear of losing their jobs. They faced their circumstances alone. Cada mujer vive su propio miedo sola, enfrenta su propia realidad sola. Entonces, a veces uno tiene que nada más llorar detrás de la puerta porque no puedes hacerlo enfrente de tus hijos porque te van a preguntar qué te pasa. Si tienes tu pareja, también te va a preguntar. Uno se acuesta pensando en el problema, se levanta pensando en el problema. Vas al trabajo, sigues pensando en el problema que uno está pasando. Y aunque uno se cambia de trabajo, el problema sigue estando ahí. El problema de, de acoso sigue estando ahí porque es en cualquier lado que uno va. O reporto lo que me está pasando o dejo de alimentar a mis hijos. Bosses created an ambience of fear, making it hard to say or do anything about the working conditions. For example, when workers asked for water, bosses would say, oh, it's far away, just wait. Or... Don't worry, it's going to rain later. You'll see. Or, go drink from the pond in the ditch. Lupe describes it as a message of power, declared loud and clear. Same for the sexual harassment. If a boss caught word that the women were talking about him and his behavior, he would start a chain of gossip, as Lupe describes it, to cast doubt on the women. So to avoid being talked about by their own co-workers, to avoid losing work or punishment, they just didn't say anything. Lupe described it as living life in fear every day. Es una experiencia que se queda marcado ahí siempre. Entonces, es básicamente vivir con miedo todos los días. For those living through this, it can seem insurmountable. So when a group of farm organizers showed up at Lupe's farm after a decade of brutal working conditions, she thought it was a miracle. Para mí fue algo como, ¿de dónde viene esto? Es un milagro, que, ¿verdad? Porque uno, o sea, había pasado más de una década trabajando en la labor, viviendo esa situación, yo y miles de compañeros, ¿no? Entonces, como escuchando todo eso, uno a veces, como uno dice, ¿será esto posible? ¿Será esto cierto? the Coalition of Immokalee Workers formed back in 1993. In the 90s, farmers working in Immokalee started to get together in a community church to discuss how they could organize and improve the conditions they worked in. 
Their tactics included work stoppages, hunger strikes, and a historic 234-mile march from Fort Myers to Orlando. By 1998, they'd won 13-25% to raises and political recognition. Since its start, the coalition has had several successful programs. Perhaps the most well-known is their Fair Food Program. The Fair Food Program seeks to implement enforceable human rights standards for farm workers. And in order to change the conditions on farms, they knew they had to create pressure at the very top, with big corporations. Pero quienes iban a movilizar a, a las corporaciones eran los consumidores. Por eso se empezaron a hacer presentaciones en las universidades, se empezaron a ir a las congregaciones de fe, a los líderes religiosos, ¿verdad? A los consumidores sí les importa. La cosa es que las corporaciones invierten millones de dólares para promocionarse. The coalition increased consumer awareness of the issue. They explained the conditions that they worked in and asked folks to do something about it, like joining their boycotts. CIW held a boycott against Taco Bell for four years until they agreed to join the fair food program. They pressured big buyers like Walmart and Subway to sign on to the fair food program agreement and pay a premium to tomato growers. So for every pound of tomatoes that they purchase, they pay an extra cent that goes back directly to the workers. It may not sound like much, but since the program began in 2011, nearly $40 million of premiums have been paid back to the farmers. The program also creates strict standards of conduct for farms. There is no tolerance for cases of human trafficking, gender-based violence, or harassment. If there are any types of these abuses, workers can call into a third-party, 24-hour complaint line, which helps ensure that workers don't fear for their safety in reporting poor conditions. Lupe told me that there has to be clean and easily accessible water for workers as well, not only as a basic right, but to help protect workers from the growing effects of heat stress. One of the main reasons behind CIW's success is that it's worker-led. Those with direct experience can articulate what they need and what the solutions are. Y al igual que los abusos laborales, nadie le estaba poniendo atención a los trabajadores hasta que nosotros empezamos a alzar nuestra voz como trabajador. The Fair Food Program is seen as one of the most impactful social programs in the country. The Washington Post, Harvard University, and the United Nations have all hailed it as a model for the rest of the world. The Coalition of Immokalee Workers has received both national and international awards for its work. The coalition also provides education for farm workers. These sessions are taught by other workers during their workday to inform them of the benefits and rights that they are now entitled to as part of the Fair Food Program. That's how Lupe found out about the coalition. She describes it as a ray of sun sent from the sky. She decided that she wanted to get involved. And today, she is a senior staff member at the coalition part of her job at CIW includes teaching these sessions. Y se siente bonito, se siente satisfactorio porque es una nueva esperanza que le estás ofreciendo a tu comunidad, a tu gente. Lupe always has future generations in mind. She wants to make sure that people who come after her 
don't live through the same inhumane conditions. Quise seguir luchando para que otros puedan tener esta misma oportunidad o que las generaciones que vienen atrás de nosotros no tengan que vivir lo que yo viví, sino que vengan a trabajar en un rancho donde sus derechos sí están protegidos, donde pueden ganar un poquito mejor para de veras apoyar a su familia. If emissions remain unabated and temperatures continue to rise, the number of migrants moving from Central America into the U.S., is only expected to increase. A recent MIT survey estimated that nearly 2 million people from Central America attempted to migrate in just the last five years alone. When Lupe reflects on her experience farming back home, it's in such sharp contrast to how the United States approaches crops. No hay como esa, esa conciencia por el amor al planeta, por el amor a, a nuestra tierra. Porque solo se piensa en el dinero, pero eso no va a ayudar a todo lo que va a pasar o a todo lo que viene. Eso no va a ser suficiente para poder proteger a la gente y menos a los trabajadores. Porque siempre la gente pobre, la gente más vulnerable, son los que van a sufrir mucho más estas consecuencias del cambio climático. Lupe makes clear that in a world that prioritizes profit over the health of the environment and its people, it will always be the workers, the poor, who will suffer the most. She wants those who enjoy fresh food to think of who is harvesting and producing it. Si tú quieres eh, tener comida fresca, comida saludable en tu mesa, también piensa en quién lo está cosechando. In an attempt to unlearn separation, I asked Alexis what she would say if she had the opportunity to meet Lupe. If I actually got to sit with Lupe, I think that it would be that, that we see that something can possibly be different and we feel accountable to a large group of people whose dignity is not being honored by business as usual and the, the way things are currently structured. And so we use our imagination as artists and as activists to say, if I center on my love for the people, if I ground myself in the dignity of the world's lives and possibilities that they create and that we create together, then the role of poetry in addressing climate change is a possibility of another relation. We're responsible for it, and we are also responsible for how the climate is changing. We're responsible for what we do and don't do. We're responsible for the limits of our imaginations. So much of the typical response to the climate crisis can feel like the death of imagination. Our society feels stuck in the same extractive cycle, unable to imagine a more just and ecologically harmonious future. It's why I believe poetry and art have such a meaningful role to play in this crisis. They can give us a vision into what else is possible. When I asked Alexis 
how she thinks about the limitations of her own imagination. She pointed to the black feminist teachings that inform her work. Black feminism imagines relating to one another and to our environment beyond the limits of our capitalist system. I feel like the driving question of Black feminism is what is the most life-giving relation that we can have? And it's fundamentally environmentalist because this is the question of home, of environment, and how can we be at home? How can, in this world, we create a space that's life-giving and understands that question as a collective question and not a question that should be isolated out into this nuclear family form? You know, Audre Lorde says this explicitly, I am indivisible. And these things are not separate. These systems of oppression are not separate. And we, in our existence, are not separate. That's the key thing. Unlearning separation, right? Which is, which is where I started. So I do think that the primary work of responding to climate change is unlearning separation. Trying to unlearn separation is a profound experience. And it brings me back to the stories we've heard throughout this season. Like Rena describing her grandmother coming home from the cannery, covered in the scales of her sacred salmon. How heartbreaking it was to see the blade of colonialism disrupt the precious tie between a people and their revered, life-giving food source. It makes me think of Laura, forever sensing that mining hole that was dug out of the ground as if it was dug out of her own body. Of Motu, strengthening the ties between community and the reef that protects them. In each of these landscapes, as far away as they may seem, these women are refusing to accept the limits of Western imaginations, and instead pursuing justice and strengthening their ties to their land and their people. And if you're looking for a way to strengthen your connection to the land and to your food, a great place to start is just trying to grow something for yourself. Understanding how you can foster life. It's something Alexis told me she practices every weekend at a community garden. It's a commitment to all that is life-giving. I don't think that if everyone was in the regular practice of being in relationship with our food system in the way that farmers must be, I don't think that people would be able to ignore the basic fact that everything we have, we have to keep it alive, including ourselves. This is the final episode of our season. Thank you for joining us in celebrating and acknowledging the incredible work it takes to move just one step forward in protecting our planet and the people on it. To read more of Alexis's poetry, check out alexispauline.com. To learn more about the Coalition of Immokalee Workers, go to ciw-online.org and follow them on Twitter at CIW to learn more about upcoming marches and boycotts.
As She Rises is a Wonder Media Network production. It's created by myself, Grace Lynch. Our executive producer is Jenny Kaplan. Emily Rudder is our managing producer. The show is produced by myself, Lindsay Cradwell, and Liz Smith, with research and writing by Carmen Borca Carrillo and Ale Tejeda. Huge thank you to Ale for conducting our interview with Lupe, and to Alex John Burns for her editorial support on this episode, with additional support from Aya Lane. Our original music is composed by Andrea Christian's daughter. Until next time. Hey listeners, Grace here. The climate crisis is literally the world's biggest existential problem, but we can't begin to solve it if we don't know how to talk about it first. On Crooked Media's newest podcast, Hot Take, climate essayists Mary Anais Heglar and Amy Westervelt provide an honest look at the climate crisis and all the ways media and society are talking and not talking about it. Listen to new episodes of Hot Take every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everybody, it's Grace. In making As She Rises, I knew it was critical to center indigenous voices and women of color. These are the people at the forefront of the fight against climate change, but are often left out of the conversation. This is true not just in the environmentalist movement, but also in outdoor sports and recreation as well. Do you ever wonder why the outdoors is so white or think that activities like camping or hiking are just not for you? Then you might enjoy The Trail Ahead, hosted by Faith E. Briggs and Addie Thompson. Listen in to join conversations at the intersection of race, environment, history, culture, and the outdoors. On the podcast, they speak to folks from all walks of life, from activists, artists, and athletes, to climate scientists, organizers, professors, and outdoor industry leaders. They discuss representation and access in the outdoors and environmental movements. This interracial dialogue is aimed at having tough conversations with the ultimate goal of diversifying the outdoors and welcoming people from all backgrounds into outdoor spaces and communities. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everyone. You can listen to every episode of As She Rises, including those from the newest season, ad-free with Wondery Plus. Find Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts.